let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Here's what DC is talking about. It's our Friday News Roundup. I'm here with CityCast producer Priyanka Tilvey and contributor Dan Reed, and we are talking about the surprise exit of DC's police chief. We're talking about fare evasion on the metro and about trying to create housing that middle-class people can actually afford in Arlington. Today is Friday, April 28th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. So Wednesday night, uh, news broke that Robert Conti, the D.C. police chief who's been there for two years, who spent his whole career in the MPD, was going to leave. He's taking a job at the FBI. It's one of the leaders of partnerships, which is, uh, I suspect, a job that has a lot less night hours than uh, being the chief of a big city police department. But it's it comes at a kind of big and uh, very edgy time in law enforcement in D.C. Priyanka's been thinking a lot about it. This is a really interesting time for D.C.'s police chief of all people to be leaving his station. You know, like, it just feels like there have been all eyes on D.C. crime. Congress had that pretty difficult hearing to watch in March that where they were bringing up all of the crime stats. They referred to schools, D.C. schools, as quote-unquote inmate factories. So there's that oversight and intense gaze on the D.C. crime system right now. Conti and Mayor Bowser have been out there talking about the staff shortages. The police staffing right now is at a half century low. And then, of course, there's like the rise in crime rates generally in D.C. In 2021, 227 people were murdered. That was the most of any year since 2003. There was a slight decrease last year, but then this year we're trending upwards again. So, with all of this focus and turmoil around what the crime scene in D.C. is like at the moment, I mean, to lose the top dog is sure to create some sort of turmoil, you know, and, and Chairman Phil Mendelson said he was shocked by the news. I'm curious about how they're going to handle this transition. His last day is June 3rd, so they've got a month. And it's going to be really interesting because in the middle of that month, Conti is supposed to testify with Bowser at the second, like the part two of the con congressional oversight hearing. That's on May 16th. So I'm curious about how that's going to go down. I imagine that congressional Republicans are going to be really obnoxious about the fact that Conti is there, assuming he still goes, and that he is about to leave his post, and the crime situation is what it is. Yeah, it sounds awkward. Like the timing is so bad, mm. it almost seems like designed to to create questions of uncertainty. I mean, you could also look at it the other way and say this is sort of an opportunity. Look, if I'm the financial advisor to the Conti family, he's been on the MPD since he was seventeen. It's a thirty-year run. 
take your pension, take a senior job <laughs> at the FBI, you come out ahead, right? So assuming that it's just a matter of him sort of seizing an opportunity and not some other thing that you know we don't know about. The opportunity for the mayor or for the city is to kind of reset the conversation about law enforcement. I mean, crime rates have gone up. This is a subject in blue-collar D.C. neighborhoods of a lot of consternation and, and conversation. It's a subject all over the city. There has been this divide about how big the police force should be, how much money the budget should have. One of the divides has been, like, literally, the people who represent east of the river, D.C., have been uh, among those pushing for bigger budgets, keeping police officers in school and so on. This is a divide. It's a philosophical divide in the city. The question of how confident we ought to be in law enforcement and how much law enforcement has to do with the crime rate are all kind of open questions. Introducing a new police chief who can sort of lay out a strategy and win public support for it or spur this divide so that we, through our democratic processes, can kind of decide on a way to go, that's actually could be a good thing. It could be an opportunity for the mayor. It obviously is incredibly, incredibly fraught uh, with danger. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I do see your point. I do see how she could use this as an opportunity to turn the conversation around. I just think that it's not going to be in congressional Republicans' interest at all to give her that opening. And I'm a little bit skeptical of her ability to take that opening on May 16th. But look, we had been in as a country, this sort of system where they were like, kind of like star police chiefs and they, they were like football coaches. They moved from city mm -hmm. to city. This Conti's model of like coming up all the way through one force, winning his promotions, getting to know people in the neighborhoods, eventually leading the force. That was viewed as kind of the yesteryear model. DC had had chiefs like Charles Ramsey who'd been, come from you know elsewhere and then went on to elsewhere. The appointment of a new chief, whether it is a sort of a superstar from someplace else in the country or a lifer in MPD, would give the mayor or the new chief an opportunity to articulate a strategy and then, because this person has to be confirmed, enroll the D.C. Council and, by extension, the general public in this strategy so that instead of a moment of like great division about policing, we could have at least some degree of shared investment in what we're going to do from here. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, I was also thinking about the fact that Conte became police chief in January 2021, literally right before the insurrection. He took office on January 2nd. So it's been a hard two years. From that perspective, also don't blame him for wanting to kind of get out and move on. Um, and maybe he's been trying to, to move on to something else for a second now. Well, right. And he spent a lot of that time also internally dealing with a council that was interested in pulling back his budget, mm. dealing with new rules and regulations. But I don't think there's anybody in the world who leads an organization that wants a smaller budget. The new rules and regulations, I think a lot of uh, professional uh, people believe in professional policing are actually happy with rules that encourage uh, professionalism and help, help make it easier to get rid of bad cops. Right. And it wasn't just council, right? It's like... Both of those are like administrative headaches that like, you know, insofar as being a police chief has like, you know, parts of the job that are lots of fun and engaging and parts of the job that are not much fun. I think the not much fun parts of his job were uh, closer to the surface the last couple of years. Right. Well, I mean, especially because it's not just council that was calling to reduce the police budget. It was a national phenomenon. <laughs> and so he right. was up against a real wave of people trying to 
to take away his budget. And I just like, I guess I see why he'd want to bounce. Right. And police chiefs, like leaders of all kinds of big organizations, are dealing with a very different labor market. It's harder to find talent. We talked about this, I think, last week. The police department's having a lot of recruiting problems. People with political agendas are going to say like, oh, this is because they're, you know, making it harder to be a cop by forcing them to have rules. But it's also hard, harder these days to recruit like people for schools or newsrooms or, you know, all kind, almost any workplace. So again, like 2023 is not a great epoch to be in institutional leadership. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree. That's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So I have a question for y'all. It's it's a big one. Uh, Do you live in a townhouse or apartment of some kind? Apartment, yeah. Of some kind. I have a house (laughs) that is connected on one side and not connected on the other. What does that make me? Uh, A duplex. I live in a townhouse. They're great. I like not having a big yard. It was more affordable than a house house. Uh, my next door neighbor likes to listen to my chemical romance and I can't hear him through the wall. But if I could, at least we have similar taste in music. <laughs> <laughs> so if you're, a, if you're a fan of apartments, townhouses, and duplexes, it's a time to rejoice. Last month, Arlington County became one of the first places in the U.S. to, quote, ban single-family zoning and allow duplexes, townhomes, and little apartment buildings in much of the county. Basically, what it says in most of the county, you can only build a single-family house, like one house before, and now you can build four and in some areas, six houses on the same lot. But the requirements for how big the building can be, uh, how much yard the space there has to be, tree cover, parking, those will all stay in place. County officials say it won't generate a lot of houses, maybe like 100 a year, but it could go a long way to providing homes that are more affordable for like middle class people in Arlington because basically in 1938, the county banned row houses for somewhat like explicitly racist and classist reasons. And so a lot of the conversation about this over the past couple of years has been about sort of righting that wrong and making sure that Arlington can stay like an inclusive place to live. Mm. Question about this. So the fact that they're banning single family zoning that doesn't mean that like single family homes can't be built it just means that like you can't say only single family homes will be built in this area right that's right you can still have a single family house if you have one it it's still there like you can't take <laughs> it away from you they're not going to come and like <laughs> shoehorn other apartments or townhouses in between <laughs> Like you wake up the next morning and like someone just put a wall down the middle of your house. No. <laughs> it's interesting. It's happening everywhere in this region in the inner suburbs This where it's kind of like 
are we like cities or are we suburbs? And, you know, whether it's Arlington or Silver Spring or, or whatever, and around the country too. And the core of it is these places that were built on the middle class are really, really, really difficult to afford. Whether it's sort of letting somebody build an additional unit into their house and rent it out and therefore help themselves pay the mortgage or, you know, in-law suite or row houses or whatever. You know, it ultimately means more people can live in the same amount of real estate. But it is a thing nationally, and it's been a really interesting issue because it's sort of divided us politically in exactly the way you would imagine, right? Where in the last election, last presidential election, Trump said, you know, they're trying to destroy Mm -hmm. the suburbs and I'm going to support the suburbs and blah, blah, by which he meant cul-de-sacs and single family homes and that kind of thing. And people would say like, how is it like conservative or Republican to tell a property owner what he or she can or can't do with their property that they own? And if you want to like buy a whole block and put up an enormous mansion, that's cool. And if you want to buy a whole block and put up a bunch of row houses, that should be cool too. It's your property after all. That's the like correct like free market <laughs> position, is it not? Yeah, it's kind of kind of scrambled the sort of political divide as we see it, right? And I think you're totally right. It is sort of like a litmus test for like, how do you view the place where you live? Like, do you think of it as a suburb? Do you think of it as an urban place or, or something in between? And that, I think, symbolism weighs really heavily on people. Like you mentioned, Montgomery County had a similar debate over this last year with their big plan. Alexandria is about to start a similar effort this year. And meanwhile, in Prince George's County, two county council members are actually trying to ban townhouses in most of the county, sort of like the reverse of it, right? In part because when uh, the council vice president, Walla Blagay, says uh, single family homes fit the character of the county more. So it's part of it is about like housing and making it more accessible for people to live in a place. And part of it is about like, what do you think your place should be? Mm. Well, part of the reason this is in the news right now, like this week, is because some Arlington residents are trying to block the zoning change now, right? Right. Yeah. Ten residents filed a lawsuit and they have basically two arguments. One is that they weren't being heard enough. And two, that this is such a dramatic and radical change for the county that they should have been heard more. And but what you're saying, though, it's not a dramatic and radical change. You're saying it'll maybe mean 100 things a year. Right. The county put a cap on how many permits they'll give for this every year for the next five years. So we won't. It, the idea is it won't create a lot of changes at once, but over time, it could help make the county more affordable. Right. But like, how could they not have been properly informed? I feel like if you were researching who to vote for last November, this was the only thing anyone was talking about in Arlington. Then it's like they were... Like, this story was just everywhere. I don't live in Arlington. I, I Obviously, I know I'm like, I'm plugged into the news, maybe more than most. But like, if you live there and you care about this, then it's stupid to say that you didn't know. Well, Priyanka, you can't take them at their word for that. The last refuge in any fight you lose in municipal politics is the process objection that you weren't listened to enough or in the right way. That's true. I just find it so obnoxious. It's sort of like, well, we didn't get what we want, right? That's what they're really saying. We didn't yeah. get what we want, so you didn't listen to us. It is what every child says <laughs> when they didn't get the toy that they wanted. <laughs> <laughs> but look, at this is, I mean, the big picture here for folks is this question of like, what are the inner suburbs? What is the region more broadly? That's like Dan said, is this going to be a place where you can kind of 
do that suburban dream, pretend you live in a, in a rural area with like windy roads and cul-de-sacs, or is it going to be a place that acknowledges like, hey, this is a very large metropolitan area where lots of people need to live. And we're not talking, when we talk about affordable housing, we often use that as a euphemism for housing for very, very poor people. But in this case, we're talking about housing for members of the middle class, not people who would think of themselves as needy in any way, but people who just still can't afford a place to live here. And I think one of the great generational scams in recent American history has been that you know members of the baby boom generation bought houses, set a bunch of zoning rules in place to make it really difficult for more supply to be added. And then next generations come along and ain't got no place to live unless those rules get adjusted. So I think this is the Arlington version of a conversation that's happening all over DC, all over the DC region, and really all over the country. And, you know, if it weren't that we were worried about the survival of democracy and stuff, it might actually be a major theme in national politics. My kingdom for if single family zoning was the, the biggest issue in America right now. <laughs> Read 2024. <laughs> All right. So speaking of issues that a new D.C. police chief will hope that they can work on because they are seem small enough to uh, not involve uh, soaring murder rates and stuff, but maybe they're related. The general manager of Metro has said something again about fare evasion in Metro, which is a increasing phenomenon, uh, which is hurting their bottom line. And uh, they are trying to like architect their way around the problem with bigger gates that are harder to jump over. Randy Clark's contention is that one of the causes of this is that DC a few years ago decriminalized fare evasion, i.e. if you get caught jumping over the turnstile, you will get a ticket instead of being arrested. And this is actually like a pretty interesting debate. On the one hand, there's people who say, well, look, you run a red light, you get a ticket. So, you know, how's this different? And for other folks, it's kind of, well, it's different because it's stealing and we view stealing differently for reasons that people can't quite always articulate. Mm -hmm. And because it makes people feel less safe and because, according to Randy Clark, this is a, you know, tens of millions of dollars a year thing for a transit system that is in a lot of financial danger. I mean, I don't know if there's any possibility of the current D.C. Council actually moving to change that uh, or whether that would make any difference. It's been like funny to watch Metro try and fix the problem on their end, right? Fort Totten is the station I use the most, and that's where they've been testing all the different kinds of fare gates. And, you know, a lot of the folks I see jumping the fare gates are teenagers who are naturally some of the most ingenious humans on Earth. <laughs> and... No matter what they do, they put the little barriers on top of the fair gates. The kids like use them to like vault themselves over even higher. They put the big saloon gates. The kids learn you just push them open and you can keep them open. So like it's almost as if Metro is saying like we've done all that we can. We cannot defeat these teenagers. So you have to give us some more tools. I think there's also a thing like. If you look back at the early days of Metro, this was being built in the 60s and 70s when like everyone thought like the New York system is so dangerous and with all that graffiti and crime and it's scary and we're going to, whatever they are, we want to be the opposite. So much of the system was built to try to create a perception that like this is a safe space, it's a calm space, we're not going to have 
graffiti because graffiti, you know, makes people feel scared, not because they're scared of graffiti, but because they're scared of lawlessness mm -hmm. and it's a sign of lawlessness. And fair evasion, I think, has a similar role. If you're in a place and you see lots of people like violating the rules, jumping over the turnstile, well, that's no skin off your nose. But like, I think the human brain is such that you will think like, well, if this person is willing to flout the rules against turnstile jumping, maybe they'll also flout the rules against punching me in the nose. Mm -hmm. And that creates, you know, a sense of anxiety and fear. And I think if we sort of the same thing with the new police chief there, this is like the thing that like the politics of crime does to people. It makes people anxious. It's corrosive and makes you suspicious of your fellow human. It makes you feel ill at ease in the shared spaces that like we as city dwellers should be treasuring. Yeah. I mean, it is kind of a head and heart thing. I mean, because mm -hmm. when you talk about teenagers jumping the turnstiles, I mean, in DC, most students can ride Metro for free. So when they're jumping the turnstile, they're just doing it for fun. Oh, because they're like teenagers who right. forgot their card at yeah. home. It's also hard to get your card. Like it's not always straightforward to, to get your free Metro card. Yeah. I don't know that they're thinking it out this way, right? But like theoretically, they know that they can ride for free. So they're like, I can just jump this. It's like fun. It <laughs> makes me feel like a rebel. And I'm not like actually stealing any money here because I'm supposed to ride for free anyway. But like as someone who is there watching this, like I do roll my eyes a little bit when I see them jump the turnstile, especially when there's someone sitting in that little operator stand in the middle of the metro station, just like watching it. And you're like, hello, <laughs> like, aren't we supposed to be stopping the fare evasion? Like what, what's going on? The one time I asked a station manager to help me with something, like I learned never to do that again. <laughs> what was your problem? A man was pooping in the bushes. Oh, this was at Silver Spring, and he, the guy did get out and go look for him, but he took long enough that, you know, he went over and he's like, there's nobody pooping here. And I'm like, yeah, because you took too long. <laughs> and I have to tell you, if I was, a, if I was sitting in a comfortable Metro uh, station manager's booth and uh, Dan Reed came up to me and told me to go look at someone pooping, <laughs> I might actually decide to take my time also. Valid. <laughs> And on that note, how about a life hack in DC that I hope has nothing to do with what we just talked about? I've got my cousin's kids coming to visit me this weekend. And so I was looking into to fun things for kids to do. And it turns out that Glen Echo Park has something fun happening this weekend. It's Carousel Day. The Denzel Carousel has been around for 102 years. Every year, the park makes a really big deal about the first rides of the season. And so that's happening this weekend. It's from 11 to 4 on Saturday. The rides themselves are $2 each, but then there'll be free performances and arts and crafts throughout the day. It's a lot of fun. Glen Echo can be a little bit hard to get to. You do need to have a car. Otherwise, it takes like hours to get there via public transportation. But it might be worth the Uber ride because it's a really cool space to check out. That is all for today here on CityCast DC. Dan Reed, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Thank you, Priyanka. Of course. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, why not tell a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. I can see Dan cringing because I think what he wants to say is, but if you had a time machine, you could go back in time and take the streetcar all the way there because that's where <laughs> it went. Yeah, I was. I was. The other thing I was going to say is this was uh, instead of jumping the fair gates, my teenage activity was going swing dancing at Glen Echo Park. Much more wholesome. <laughs>